This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. Siri. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Sharonik Boshu. And I'm Kim Adams. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Today, I'm speaking with Lee Claire Laberge about red cats. Lee Claire, can I ask you to introduce yourself to us? Yeah, I'm a scholar of 20th century literature, art, some critical theory and political economy for the past year and into next year. I have a position at the JFK Institute at the Free University in Berlin, and I'm a full-time faculty member at the City University of New York. And you have a forthcoming book that is entitled Marks for Cats. So let me ask our first question, which is, what the heck is a red cat? So... Marks for Cats, the full title is Marks for Cats, a Radical Bestiary, is a book that asks the question, is it possible to tell a long-durée economic history of the rise of capitalism out of ashes of feudalism from its you know, 16th, 17th century mercantilist and imperialist beginnings into its 21st century financial moment using images rhetorics, vocabulary, and so on of a cat. And the red cat is to signify a sort of communist or socialist or collectivist and somewhat utopian desire for bringing together animal studies and political economic history. They haven't always been the happiest couple. And this book sort of asks the question, quite basically, what does it mean to tell the history of capitalism through a cat? And then if you can do that, what does that make Marxist historiography? What does that make of historical storytelling? What does that deliver us in terms of thinking about, you know, not only a future, but a past that would be open to more species interpretation within a Marxist frame than simply that of humans. So the red cat is, it's a little bit of an invitation, it's a little bit of a gimmick, but it's also real. 
Okay, so are there really any red cats that you uncovered in your long history? There is a long subterranean, somewhat obscure history of radicals in a kind of political economic sense, critics of state economics, critics of economic organization, critics of social systems of power who have consistently, I'll say consistently from maybe the 12th, 13th century into the present identified themselves with cats. The color of choice usually is the black cat. That's what is found in the historical record. My use of the term red cat is somewhat of a invitation and somewhat of a provocation to think, what would it be to signify not Lucifer, not the devil, not evil, not destruction, but the color of communism, which is red. And this archive absolutely exists. It's a real archive. When people read the book, they'll recognize certain figures of that archive. Someone like Rosa Luxemburg, 20th century Polish Marxist, often identified with her cat, but other people as well. Somebody like Thomas Paine, a sort of disgruntled radical of the American Revolution, or someone like Maximilian Robespierre, you know, the sort of head of the terror of the French Revolution, or Marx himself, who used several times images of cats and of cats of all stripes, whether it be lions, domestic cats, in his writings on value, abstraction, revolution, the bourgeoisie, so on and so forth. Cool. Well, so then let me ask you my second question, which is, how do I use red cats? I think what the red cat does is it allows a different approach, a different entry point into thinking about the radical possibilities and the radical possibilities lost within economic history. If you think about what kind of academic texts bring pleasure, delight, are invested in their own aesthetic potential and promise, Marxist economic history usually doesn't rate that high up there, you know? And this book is asking us to use the image of the cat sort of otherwise, the red cat, the communist cat, to think radically about a history of radicality, to ask seriously, why does the cat return in so many different tropes, phases, symbols, so on and so forth over so long a history, but to also ask, what would it mean to have fun with Marxism? And what would it mean to have fun, have pleasure with thinking in a Marxist archive? It's work that I, as somebody who spent a lot of time reading economic histories, don't encounter very often. We can talk about why that is. We can talk about who writes these kinds of histories and for whom and under what conditions. But the idea, the sort of hoped for lure of the red cat is to explode an archive and to take literally what the Frankfurt School theorist Walter Benjamin called the radical historian's method, which for him, the term was tiger sprung or a tiger's leap, right? So here again, we have the cat. He meant it, of course, metaphorically, but in fact, the radicals cat and particularly the revolutionary tiger shows up throughout the archives of 19th, 18th, even 20th century 
revolution. It's also an invitation to sort of push the bounds of metaphor and to ask what the limits and possibilities of metaphorical thinking are. But then finally, I mean, the red cat asks us to think about what are the sort of species bounds and what are the species limits of terms like economic equality. You know, listeners are aware, we're all aware that we're in a moment of climate peril, climate crisis, climate disaster. What should our relationship to animals be in that moment? Are they partners? Are they objects? Are they commodities? Are they comrades? The book really asks us to take the figure of the cat, or in this case, the red cat, and use it to try to think through some of those questions. Okay. Can you give me an example or two from this like vast and wonderful archive that you're describing of ways in which people used cats for revolutionary purposes? What is a use that you found that was surprising to you? I think one thing that was genuinely surprising to me is the almost absurd numbers of cat references, and I, I mean cats as in felines, so now we're talking about more than just a domestic cat, but so feline references mm-hmm. in the French Revolution, okay. in the actual French Revolution, in the archive of the French Revolution, in the historiography of the French Revolution. The French Revolution is obviously extremely important for Marx and Marxists. I mean, it's one of the two great bourgeois revolutions. And Jean-Jacques Rousseau, if we want to take a patron saint of the French Revolution, on the cover of The Social Contract, whose very famous first sentence, man is born free and everywhere he is in chains. It's a sexist sentence. I don't use man to mean men, but that's what he did. The cover of The Social Contract, there were two different covers in its first printing. Both contained a cat. One had the scales of justice, the lady justice holding scales on her shoulder with a cat seated at her feet. And then another had a sort of salon-dwelling type lady sitting in a chair, also with a cat sitting next to her. And Rousseau used the domestic cat as what he called his test of character. And he said to, to be enlightened, to be a citizen, to be a thinker, he judged whether or not an interlocutor met that threshold by asking them about their relationships with cats. And for him, a cat is ultimately free. He said it will not consent to be a slave. That's his word. Humans who can tolerate the cat's freedom are themselves free. And those who chafe at a cat's will have the instincts of a despot. This goes throughout his correspondence, so on and so forth. And then the sort of central embarrassment, I think, of 20th century historiography, not only on the French Revolution, but on the idea of revolutions in modernity, was the omission of the Haitian Revolution, perhaps, you know, the most radical and revolutionary of the revolutions of modernity. C.L.R. James, in his book, The Black Jacobins, constantly evokes images of different kinds of cats. There's this sort of totality of felineness that cements this archive. Yeah. Can I ask you a brief aside? Totally. Why is there a lady on the cover of the social contract? I think justice was figured as a lady. Classically. Yeah, yeah. But what about the salon lady? Like, what's she doing there? 
You know, I don't know. I don't know. It's a good question. Yeah. I was wondering if it had something to do with domesticity. I think absolutely. Yeah. It's a very bourgeois image. And Mm -hmm. in the sort of expanse of the book, you know, because the book starts in the ninth century, obviously there's no, (laughs) there's no capitalism, there's no bourgeoisie, but it's really the bourgeoisie of the 19th century who domesticate the idea of the animal in a sense that we would recognize it today and Mm -hmm. who particularly domesticate a certain version of the cat that is still quite recognizable to us today. Okay, so then let me ask you our final question, which is how will the red cat save the world? It's a provocative question for a provocative concept. I think there's a moment in which a conversation becomes somewhat saturated and stalemated. And I think that contemporary Marxism and contemporary political economy has given us a lot of these moments. And I think that contemporary political economists, a lot of contemporary socialist and Marxist politics, they've turned off a lot of different constituents for a lot of different reasons. Mm -hmm. And many of them, I think, are quite good reasons. So the idea of this book and of a interspecies Marxism or sort of an interspecies future is to invite new people into the conversation and to try to make it a little bit less stultifying. What is that conversation? I would say the conversation is how do we organize an economy where most people can flourish and which is not destructive at its core of the material world on which it is built? So that's the most utopian moment of the book. You know, if you spend time on Twitter, on Facebook, on social media, I can promise you, you will find no shortage of Marxists who are interested in their own cats, who are interested in talking to their cats, who deeply love and appreciate their cats. But if you ask them, can we extrapolate from there? Is there a politics here? Are these animals, are they just cute? Are they just sentimental? They're just fuzzy and nice to have around? Like, is there a politics to our relationship and particularly to leftist, socialist, Marxist, however you want to call it? Is there a politics to the relationality toward the non-human world? And if so, what is that? Someone like Angela Davis has spoken so powerfully about this and you know, she herself was a kind of red cat. She was a Black Panther. Mm-hmm. For her, the relationality that she takes from Marx to the world includes species more than just humans. And she's really one of the few to do it. But what this book does is it says she comes from a long, a long genealogy of people who asked us to consider the same things. So That's the hope of the book. It is out next summer from Duke University Press. I'm very excited to have it in the world. I can tell you it was one of the more fun and pleasurable things I've written. And I hope some of that sense of my own approach comes off in the tone of the book. Thank you so much for coming and speaking with us. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharnik Bosu and Nathan Kim manage your social media presence. Julia Arian Martins edits our transcripts. Owen Quinn composes our theme music. And Kim Adams and Sharnik Bosu edit our audio. 
You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.